Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Damien Latouf, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you very much for having me, mate. Your name came across my desk just recently. Um, One of my colleagues actually flicked me a copy of an article that you, I think, at least co-authored. And that was in the uh, conversation. It was... We te- and I'll, I'll call and I'll, I'll give you the title of it. it was, we tested tiger snake scales to measure wetland pollution in Perth. The news is worth than expected. So look, that uh, and that led me down the rabbit hole of uh, looking at your published papers about the topic and learning all I can about snakes, which previously wasn't much. But we always love. Uh, I'm not sure, have you listened to much of the Ocean Protect podcast episodes, Damien? No, not yet. Sorry, I have to admit. <gasps> Oh, look, there's a whole back catalogue just waiting for your ears. Uh, but uh, normally it's actually uh, myself and Jeremy Brown hosting the show, but you're stuck with me today. Jeremy is in New Zealand looking after his mother, and we're hoping he's back soon. But uh, normally I'm the brains and the good looks of the uh, of the duo, and Jeremy is sort of the comic relief. That's what I'll say with Jeremy not here. But uh, look, you're stuck with me today, but I am excited about this talk. You're currently a PhD candidate. Yeah, that's at correct. At Curtin University. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and you're also a, a fauna ecologist. Uh, at, is, is this your sort of uh, sideline business at Spectrum Ecology? Uh, that is a company I work casually for in Perth. Oh. I, I have, yeah, been doing contract consulting for the last 10 years. Oh, right. For whatever city I'm living in pretty much or interstate. Yeah, wow, wow. And so you're obviously calling from Perth today? Yeah, that's right. So why snakes? How, how did you how did you find yourself being a a snake wrangler and uh, researcher? Well, I was always interested in snakes as a kid, which is the general trend for most snake researchers. Kind of born into it, but you know, there's not a lot of jobs um, and research opportunities, especially in Australia, to work on snakes, mainly because of their venomous factor. So a lot of you know a lot of unis and stuff they don't want to support projects uh, or research into these species because there's obviously a huge hazard involved. So purely the, the danger of actually doing snake research puts off universities from offering scholarships and and subsidies to undertake that research. Yeah, yeah, that's the the general trend. I mean, I think a lot of the more basic questions were answered a couple of decades ago. 
what, as in snakes are, are, are bitey and they can kill you? Oh, I guess it would be more, more so about your basic ecology questions and things. Um, okay, and then you know a, a few other more famous Australian snake researchers like Rick Shine and many members from his lab. Uh, they did the nitty gritty back in the day and kind of answered these baseline questions first, and and you know obviously worked out as well that snakes can be quite a difficult. Uh, subject to work on in regards to like finding and, and catching, you know, getting good sample sizes that we need for science. Yeah, look, no doubt. And obviously, when people think of snake research, obviously they, they think of it as being a fairly dangerous occupation. But before we get into the sort of the, the dangers, sna- snakes are actually a, a very beautiful animal or creature, reptile, aren't they? Like close up and you, and you, and you get, get the opportunity to feel their skin and look at the patterns on their bodies. And just when you think about what they sort of endure just to survive and, and reproduce, they are an amazing creature, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're really fascinating, especially when you're talking like from an evolutionary perspective of you've just got this mm. one constant body shape that's basically a head and a noodle and they've, <laughs> they've conquered almost every niche in the world, you know, and haven't really changed that shape. Yeah. Whereas all these other animals, you know, they, they kind of, they change their shape a lot to kind of match the environment they're in. But snakes just, they've gotten everywhere and they've just retained it. And they've lasted a long time. Obviously, I'm guessing the snakes go back to the, the dinosaur age, don't they, and maybe before? Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what the, the current estimated age of the oldest fossil is at the moment. But, you know, every couple of years they keep rediscovering or discovering a new older specimen somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm guessing you did some sort of undergraduate degree in sort of environmental science and and it sort of progressed from there in terms of your sort of studies. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I did my uh, basic undergrad at uh, Western Sydney University and, you know, we're just kind of exposed to all the general fauna studies. I always wanted to specialise in reptiles, snakes, specifically a PhD. I wanted to, it to be on snakes, you know. I thought if I'm going to be investing three to four years of my life uh, and all this energy into something. It's got to be on what my key focus is, which, mm. which I applied at at least three different universities, I think, over the years to do a project on snakes, some venomous, some non-venomous species, and just couldn't get that project accepted or up and running or get a scholarship for it until I applied at Curtin over here in Perth. I'm from Sydney originally. Yeah, yeah. So you had to go from one side of the continent to the other to find a university willing to take on the risk of you wrangling snakes around the local wetlands yeah i think that's basically what happened wow. i just had to to keep to keep testing everyone until someone said yeah okay yeah that seems all right yeah it's, it's probably like a lot sort of safer i guess to sort of just give some scholarship to some quantum physics you know academic to sit in a lab and theorize and and, you know, uh, scratch their chin as opposed to having some guy like yourself, you know, literally, I guess, waist deep in water and, and long grass trying to find uh, venomous snakes and, and basically uh, take samples of them and poke holes in them and, and do all sorts of stuff, I guess, to analyse them. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, like trying to think of a good high-impact research question as well, using snakes is, is also the next mm. difficult thing, which, yeah, my, my project kind of, started off it was initially formulated by a couple of my supervisors in a different direction and i was kind of like look i don't think this is as exciting enough so 
let's try and take it down this new way. And it's, you know, it's just kind of snowballed from there as, as to like we're not actually, you know, researching the snakes so much themselves but more of their presence and use as an indicator species. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that. So, and, and I'm keen to get sort of get into the the. I guess there's two key papers that I've I've read of yours that are looking at this. I guess concept of using snakes as a bio in, indicator of I guess wetland pollution. So, so can you explain to me why are snakes a good bio in, indicator of water quality? Yeah. So, the thing with snakes, my focus, particularly wetland snakes, is Firstly, the tiger snakes we're looking at and a lot of other these wetland snakes in different parts of the world that have received research, they're pretty high up in the food chain. That's always a, a really good bioindicator species in itself. Typically, for an indicator of ecosystem health or contamination, you're looking at either the bottom of the food chain or the top. Yeah. The bottom obviously being the first ones to receive any contamination. If the levels are so toxic, it normally takes out that bottom level and then everything you know, disappears going up the food chain. Whereas mm. when you're looking at the top of the food chain, you're normally looking at contamination levels that aren't super toxic. They're much more chronic and they're just kind of trickling through the food chain and kind mm. of accumulating in those top trophic species. They're longer lived normally, mm. so they're exposed to these contaminants over a lot longer period of time. Snakes are really good because they're eating the entire animal so they're basically you know getting the full load of whatever's in that next lower level snakes generally have a small home range which is normally pretty good for when you're looking for local contamination a lot of people measure birds or fish you know both these species can move along area so what you're might be measuring might not actually be true of that local contamination and another thing that snakes i think are really interesting compared to all other taxa as, as an indicator is they've got such a slow metabolism and this is true for like crocodiles and uh, turtles as well you know like your large reptiles because their metabolism is so slow they're actually metabolic processes to like get rid of these contaminants is a lot slower so mm. you're probably when you're testing them you're getting a measure of a lot longer period of time for these local sites and also another interesting aspect about reptiles and contamination there's not a heap of studies that have done laboratory tests exposing them Mm. to contaminants which is the only true way to measure like you know what are the effects of these contaminants but most of these experiments have come back with null results for reptiles they're such hardy species though aren't they like it would would, because they've sort of outlived the dinosaurs basically they can obviously handle a a probably a a fairly large dose of toxicity before they actually sort of show i guess morbidity yeah exactly and and i think in relation to their uh, metabolic processes and you know the way that their physiology works is it takes a lot longer just to see these effects because they're just not running at Mm. at top speed like all these other animals so I think my general suspicion is a lot of these laboratory tests have just not been long enough, you know, six months to a year maybe. It mightn't be long enough to actually see these effects. But when you're going out and you're measuring these wild animals that are known from these, like bound to these sites kind of thing, I think we can get a lot accurate, more accurate measurement in larger, older animals. 
Yeah, yeah. The recent conversation article I referred to does refer to two published papers, and I'll include the links to these in the show notes because we do have a, quite a few loyal listeners that do love to delve into the details. So one of them is in published in the Journal of Environmental Pollution, and it's called Snake Scales Record Environmental Metalloid Contamination. Another one's in the Journal of Environmental Contamination and Toxicology, and that's got a very long um, uh, title uh, called The Broad Scale Analysis of Metals, Trace Elements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera using snake as a, bio, as a bioindicator. It's almost a paragraph in a title, but I'm keen to sort of delve into detail around this, these two studies. In particular, I guess, obviously, they're, they're very much focused around the wetlands of Perth, which is obviously where, where you're sort of uh, living as well. So for people who might not be familiar with sort of Perth and, and particularly the sort of, I guess, the wetland environment that you're doing these sort of the, the sampling in, can you sort of give some description as to, I guess, the environmental conditions of these wetlands? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Perth's a really cool study system for looking at the impacts of, of urbanization on the ecosystem or environments because the entire city is built on a bioregion known as the Swan Coastal Plain, which is essentially uh, a whole bunch of sand dunes that run uh, north to south. And in the bottom of the sand dunes, historically, it was connected by all these wetlands, these changes of the wetlands. Some would be more permanent. Most of them would be ephemeral going between the winter rains and the summer dry periods. Now, I think it's estimated 70% of those wetlands are gone, as obviously the city gets built on them. Now we've got these still kind of semi-interconnected wetlands that go from like the center of the city, like all the way out into uh, the bushland around there. So we get this kind of cool system where we can, you know, almost have this measure of urbanization on each wetland, seeing on how old the city is around it and the degree of modification it's received in terms of like groomed vegetation and changing the hydrology, like di- digging out mm. deeper pools or, you know, a lot of these wetlands have been completely cropped for like your yeah, classic kind of park, you know, mowed grass, mm. a couple of nice trees, a couple of play equipments, and then they don't have much remnant vegetation anymore. But what we see is you've still got these, some of these larger wetlands that are a bit more of your, I don't know, council reserves, you know, that people want to go and to get some recreational bush experiences and Mm. when you've got these at least a couple of meters of dense fringe of vegetation around the edge we seem to have this like quite abundant population of tiger snakes in in a handful of these wetlands and what comes to the tigers is frogs obviously that they're eating Mm. and yeah a bunch of other species that are still kind of persisting in these these areas and because perth itself isn't as old or as large as cities like Melbourne and Sydney, from an Australian perspective, oh, and Brisbane even, from an Australian perspective, you know, we might be looking at like kind of what along an urbanisation timeline of like not as old as those cities yet, you know, like what maybe these cities look like mm-hmm. and, and yeah. Yeah. biodiversity there was before they reached the level they are now. Yeah, because I guess Perth is a smaller city, so it has expanded to lesser extent relative to, say, Melbourne, Sydney. Yeah. So it still does have these wetland environments that are increasingly getting encroached on. But it sounds like it, despite that sort of urban encroachment, there are still abundant populations of snakes even just off, off the path. Yeah. Which is good to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh... <laughs> It's like and and Jugites as well. Jugites seem to love getting around through Perth because they like. So what's a so what's a Jugite? Oh, Jugite is it's the southwestern brown snake. Oh, it's it's the equivalent of the eastern oh, brown. Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's obviously highly poisonous, highly venomous. Behaviorally, nowhere near as cranky as the eastern brown in my experience. Okay. So a lot less bites. They're they're a lot shyer, but. But similar size, similar ecology. They like eating the, the rats and mice. And that's, I guess, you know, we talked about the food chain before, but these guys are essentially on top of the food chain. So yeah. the, the snakes eat the rats and the frogs and the, and the frogs and the rats eat little critters like bugs and whatever, yeah. and the bugs probably eat little smaller things. So essentially they are on top of the food chain and as, as we indicated in terms of the, the bioindicator or bioaccumulation, essentially when you've got pollution being accumulated at these lower levels on the food chain it's just getting more and more concentrated as you as you move further and further so whilst we think oh yeah snakes you know people might not like snakes but they certainly like say frogs Mm -hmm. and if and if the snakes are showing high levels of contamination or heavy metal sort of concentrations in their tissue probably indicates the the frogs are sort of i guess having a similar issue as well yeah exactly and i guess like another key thing to think about is the fact that because snakes are so hardy, other species sort of lower on the food chain probably, well, almost certainly would be more susceptible to that contamination. So, for example, frogs I would suspect would be a little bit more sensitive to sort of heavy metal contamination or other sort of toxins accumulating in their own bodies. Yeah. Would that be a fair – is that a reasonable assumption or – Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And this is uh, something I've – kind of always wanted to look into my my feeling about the whole thing is you know some of these like your frogs and your small birds and your small mammals that are living at these wetlands you know maybe they've got a lifespan of three to five years as an adult if the levels of contamination are having an effect on them that they're not living as long but they're still reproducing going out and just doing a spot survey you're still going to indicate all these species and detect them all and you know just go okay they're all here that's all going fine but maybe their survival and lifespan is reduced because of this and you, you don't notice that when you're just going out and measuring them once off what we could be seeing in the snakes is yeah that they're, they're living older they're accumulating more over time and it is reflecting those species lower in the food chain but Mm. the just their presence and indication and abundance doesn't necessarily mean that the population is that healthy you know Mm, yeah 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 so i guess i guess that before we talk about your methods and we've got an idea of the location so what is the key question that your research or, or even your phd is is trying to answer yeah so 
The whole PhD started off basically by looking at tiger snakes on Karnak, which is an island off the coast of Perth that doesn't have wetlands. It's kind of like a desert island. It's got heaps of tiger snakes. They feed on baby birds. Really cool system. And then you've got these in this one particular lake in Perth called Herdsman Lake, which is the most snake abundance I've seen anywhere in Australia. It's really well known. Like you can go there and I think we've caught 25 tiger snakes in an hour. It was probably our top. <laughs> yeah, yeah, our top numbers. So there, there are snakes everywhere. This is a very popular public park. People walk in there all the time. Everyone knows there's snakes there. It's really cool, but they're, they're pretty notorious for being in really poor condition, lo- looking in really poor condition. Yeah, yeah. And one of my supervisors who's worked a lot on both these populations, he found that the Herdsman Lake tiger snakes have a lot of nematodes in their stomach, like really big burdens of worms, and the snakes on Karnak don't. So the, the initial question was, is this something to do with urbanization? Or do they have more parasites in urban areas because they're making their mm. immune, immune systems, mm. you know, messing up because of a whole bunch of urban stresses? So when I started the PhD, that was the initial question was like, okay, we've got some snakes that look bad in a city, heaps of worms. And my initial thought was, I don't really want to do my entire PhD on nematodes. It's not. <laughs> I did a master's <laughs> on parasites and worms. Yeah, and I was just, you know, I was like, yes, I want to work on snakes. Uh, I don't know if the whole parasite thing is going to be that be interesting enough for me to keep me there. So I was thinking, okay, but we still got this valid question. Let's actually broaden this into like, what are the impacts of urbanization on tiger snakes? Mm. Now we've got this system where we've got these wetlands that are kind of along an urban gradient. Let's look at parasites because they are an obvious indicator of health. And then the next thing was, you know, heavy metals, urban pollution. As I started digging into it, I realized basically no one's looked at it in snakes in Australia. There's a handful of people around the world that mainly in Europe and the US uh, that do some water snake contamination stuff, mainly mercury. Then I started realizing that there's not a lot of Australian ecotox studies on terrestrial animals at all. It's just kind of seemed to be this area that's that's a little bit ignored in Australia. I think for a combination of reasons of we don't have huge pollution sources compared to other countries, so it's actually not as much of a risk comparatively, maybe. That, that is interesting because we obviously still have, you know, uh, our population centres, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane yeah. and Perth and Adelaide, like they're, they're large urban areas and we, and we do know even in Australia that the leading cause of uh, ecological degradation in our waterways, at least our urban waterways, is is urban stormwater runoff. Mm-hmm. But I guess, yeah, it's just interesting to hear you sort of talk about that, that, that I guess the ecotoxicology of those waterways hasn't actually been studied in any significant detail. Yeah, well, not, not so much in your, your vertebrates, you know, terrestrial vertebrates, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, yeah. Because certainly I, I know from just from like because I'm a stormwater engineer and, and mm. you know, we see day in and day out just the unbelievable pollution running off our impervious hard sand areas, our roads, our car parks, our urban areas, industrial, commercial areas. Like it, it almost is beyond belief the gunk that is flowing off our hard stand areas when rain falls and people think oh yeah it washes washes the streets clean when it rains but that 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 pollution does go somewhere and, it, and it ultimately ends up in our waterways and and often our oceans mm-hmm. but yeah it, it's it's almost it's given that that gunk that we see running off our urban areas has to have some really nasty impact like even it's just a smell. Like we, we, for example, we put in 
uh, storm, you know, filters and little uh, mesh bags to capture the pollution before it goes into our waterways, trying to intercept it. And it is, you can just smell it. You can see it. You can see how, I guess, toxic it would be to waterway and wetland ecology. But yeah, look, having said that, I've never seen anyone actually, or never heard of anyone actually doing a, a study looking at, I guess, snakes as an e- indicator of that pollution level in a, in a waterway. Hence, hence the sort of uh, the reason why we reached out, Gun. And there's, there's certainly something very interesting about this study because number one, I, I don't know anyone who wrangles snakes, and number two, I don't know anyone who publishes papers about uh, using snakes as a as a bio indicator of pollution in uh, in waterways and wetlands. So. Yeah, I guess we first, before, I guess the other thing I'm getting to know is how do you actually catch a snake? Uh, it's pretty easy with the old tiger snake. They're, they're not a very flighty species, first of all, especially in these urban wetlands. But basically, we go out in early spring, throughout spring when it's just coming out of winter, they're all starting to come out of their slumber, getting ready to breed. They're all hungry. They're spending most of their time in the mornings. Like, I feel most of the population is active at that time and they're basically we get out in the morning just before or just as they're coming out to bask and that kind of gives us that the air temperature is cool enough that it gives us like a few hour window where the snakes are all waking up and they're just curled up in the grass basking and like in a lot of these wetlands that we're surveying you know it's, it's green grass or brown vegetation and you've got a mostly black snake or sometimes heavily banded. So they stick out really easily um, a lot of the time. You know, sometimes they're actually still under the grass and we might just catch a few scales as we're walking past. But, yeah, first of all, we go out at the right time of day, right time of year. We have worked out the kind of spots they like to shelter in, like the types of vegetation structure, so we just target them. And I have a master's student at the moment who's been really good and really helpful. Otherwise, I've had a handful of volunteers that I know are all really good, competent snake catchers. And we use two important tools. One's a pinning stick that we made up, which is just like a meter long pole with yeah. a fork on it and like a, a leather belt, you know, it's got some spring. Yeah. So that allows us to immobilize a snake as soon as we see it. And that, that way we don't have to see its head or, or, you know, we can only see a little coil of its body and we can pin it down, stop it from escaping. And then our other hand basically has an elbow length Kevlar glove revolutionized catching snakes for me. So I've been a snake catcher previously and working with a lot of brown snakes where we're like running and tailing them and, you know, the, the snake can be going nuts and, yeah, you're basically yeah. using your own speed and dexterity to to kind of control it and calm it down before you get it in a bag. But now we've got these Kevlar gloves. We can pin them with one hand, other hand, grab them behind the head. It doesn't matter if the snake turns around and, you know, if we don't have it held properly and it kind of turns around, has a little nibble yeah. on the glove because it's not really getting through those gloves and the tiger snake fangs are only a couple of mil long. So, okay. yeah, yeah. Are they poisonous or venomous? Yeah, 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 highly venomous. So, if they have a nibble on you, sorry, if they, yeah, if, the, if they were to inject their venom into you, how long have you got before you're in all sorts of trouble? So, that depends on a bunch of variables of like fitness and what you're actually doing at the time and like your stress and heart rate levels. You know, if you lay down mm. and stay still, it can take a lot longer before the symptoms start to kick in. But I do have a friend who unfortunately copped a bite to the chest by one and oh, dear. he was, I think, what was he saying? Within about 15 minutes of starting to get the symptoms. I believe the statistics for untreated bites of all tiger snake bites in Australia was I think about 60% died. Oh. 
So that's if you don't have any any antivenom. Obviously, a lot yeah. of these bites were prior to good medicine. So as far as I'm aware, I couldn't tell you that the what the venom actually does, but I know people who have been bitten by them, you know, you're getting your throbbing headaches, you're feeling super crook, people passing out, throwing up, evacuating all the orifices of all the fluids. Oh, no. Not a pleasant time. And then, and then a lot of people can kind of get these follow-up to symptoms of like, their muscles degenerating over time. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so so tiger snakes have, again, I can't tell you all the compounds of their venom, but from what I'm aware, they, they have like quite a cocktail of compounds in their venom because they eat a variety of prey. They, they love frogs, but they can eat birds and mammals and reptiles as well. So their venom is kind of suited to knock out all the different things, yeah, which means they're pretty potent to people. But really, like as much as people might find snakes very scary, the, the rates of... The, the death numbers in Australia due to snake bites are actually quite low, really, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they're super low. I couldn't tell you the stat off the top of my head, but, you know, I'm, you're kind of being a snake researcher, you're getting sent all the news articles and it's only like a couple of years. Yeah. Every year we get sent that's like a bite's happened here or a bite's happened there and like rarely mm. ever any deaths. Which is pretty amazing given really we're, we're invariably living quite and, and you know, recreating and walking and, and whatever quite close to where snakes clearly are so obviously they don't want anything to do with us they're not actively pursuing us and then they're generally trying to get away from us really because we're a much bigger you know i guess predator like mm. animal relative to you know them essentially so i guess i'm guessing most people who actually get bitten really are people actually trying to catch them or or you know trying to kill them basically yeah yeah or the accidental treading on them you know like it does happen i've done it a few times yeah my phd they're just sometimes they're not fully out of the grass or the leaf litter where they're hiding Mm. other times they are but you know a lot of the time their first instinct when they feel they've been spotted is to just stay still and hope that they're not seen so a lot of time people walk Mm. into them or you know look down and suddenly it's there and then normally once the snake sees that it's been seen and and that it knows it's getting looked at then they'll most of the time turn and flee some other times they'll put on a little bit of a threat display to try and scare you off and it works almost every time thanks for listening to the ocean protect podcast episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat if you'd like to find out more about us and what we do check us out at oceanprotect.com.au